America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. My guest today is Robert Bates. I have known him my entire life. He's my Uncle Bob. He is an energetic, chocolate fanatic, 94-year-old World War II and Korean War vet. He loves people, and I'm confident that by the time you're done listening to this episode, you're going to love him too. His story is fascinating and includes the likes of Al Capone and his thugs, Jack Dempsey, and the Colonel. This episode was done at Bob's home. We are surrounded by pictures of beloved family members, including his wife, June, my aunt, who passed away a few years ago. You will hear the sound of a cuckoo clock keeping time, and also the pages that he flips through his scrapbook with photos, keepsakes, and treasured memories from his time in World War II and the Korean War. This is Bob's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is a very special one. I have with me today my Uncle Bob. Bob, why don't you start off by letting everyone know how old you are. Well, fine. I was born on May 26, 1927. That makes me 94 years old. And Bob, can you tell us a little bit about growing up, where you were born, where you yes. grew up? Born in Madison, Wisconsin at St. Mary's Hospital. My mother was an attendant there and it was run by the Catholic Sisters. And I came out, I was an incubator baby. They didn't think I would make it, but I fooled them all. <laughs> what? <laughs> and here I are. <laughs> what do you remember about the Depression? Well, the Depression, I remember my sister and I in overalls. My folks had to stand in line to get green uh, peas and anything they could get free because my dad was unemployed. And then he finally got a job with Skelly Oil Company, and it was a gas station. My dad rented this great big house trailer and parked it on the lot, and it was outside of Madison, across the street from the fairgrounds. And next to the thing was called a Wonder Bar. It was a nightclub where all uh, Al Capone used to come in, all the gangsters from Chicago. And there was a tunnel underneath the gas station to the bar. And they'd come in in their great big black Cadillacs or Buicks or whatever you want to call them. And they'd say, fill it up. And they'd go down through the door, through the tunnel to the bar with their big cigars and big big shots, you know. Did you ever see any of them or did your father? Yes, I saw them. 
And they, my dad and mom told us, the kids, you go get lost. <laughs> Were your parents nervous around them? Oh, yeah. They, wasn't, they knew who it was. And my mother used to have a little coin changer where she sold the gasoline in the cars because gas was only so much. That was during the Depression. All right. So it's the breakout of World War II. How old are you? Jeez. World War II, I, I was 17, I believe, in uh, Phoenix. No, it was California, I think. When did you move to California? 1938. And why did they move there? Because we got out of Wisconsin and we drove all the way through to California. And in 1938, they had the earthquake in California. And you were there for the earthquake? Yes, I was. And what do you remember about the earthquake? It was, it was a mess. Did your family move to California to try to find something? Job. Yeah. Right. Because of the Depression. Right. And uh, my dad was a marble setter with, you know, his, that was his profession. That and other odd jobs if he had to. Did you ever go hungry? I sure did. And to this day, I can't eat broccoli. <laughs> ah, I don't eat it. And because cauliflower, that's all you... well, my dad used to say, you clean up your plate. And I said, I can't eat it. He'd make me eat it, and I'd chuck it up, and he would give me hell. And he had a little trap door. He put me up there and closed it off, and I was scared to death. Oh, <laughs> but my I goodness. never ate it. So broccoli and cauliflower, and they I were easy to get? Is that why you I ate... still don't like it, and I can't tell... The smell of it. <laughs> Get it away from me. <laughs> like George Bush. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to do it. You are 17 years old, and you joined the military before you I turned joined 18, the Coast right? Guard okay. with me and my buddy. And they sent us from California to New York City. Well, how did you join underage? How did my that... mother and dad had to sign a paper that would let us into the service. So they were letting 17-year-olds yeah. in to fight the war. If they sold the paper that get getting let us go. Why did you want to join the war effort? Because I thought it was going to be cool. You thought it was <laughs> going to be cool. Were you nervous? I, I found out later on it was the shits. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my first night in the Coast Guard. Everybody, you got your issued all your, you got your first one in, you got all your hair cut off, and all your clothes were thrown away, and you got issued clothes, and you had your uh, mattress cover, your blanket, and your sheets, and pillows, and you had to go make your own bed, and they had two, a double-decker, and of course I said, I'm going to take the bottom one. And what a mistake that was. Why was it a mistake? Because during the night, the guy above me pissed the bed, and he let it go, and I just got drenched, and it was drip, 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 and he peed all over me. What? And I had to get up, and I had to go to take a shower. And the guy says, what's the matter, Bates? I said, the guy pissed the damn bed. So I had to go get cleaned up and knew everything new because it was all full of why, why did he do that? 
I guess he was homesick, or oh I don't know gosh. what the hell happened to him. But Now remind me, where were you? In New York City, Sheepshead Bay. And was this called BASIC? What do they call it? BASIC training. And how did you find the BASIC training? Well, it was rough. And guess who our training manager was? I remember. Officer. You told me this, but let everybody know who it was. Jack Dempsey, the boxer. How was that when you found out that's who it was? Did you well, know Well, I was very surprised, and I thought, geez, look at him, and his hands were twice as big as mine. And when he said something, you paid attention. Or he'd say, over there. And you moved. How did you find basic training? Pretty rough. They used to have a, a one of the basic things you had to do is like they would pretend you were on a ship and you're about 25, 30, 40 feet up and there was a pool and they'd put oil in it and set it on fire. And you had to jump in with your life jacket on and they told you to hold your life jacket so when you hit the water it wouldn't break your neck. And that was a hell of an experience. Didn't people get burned? Yeah. You were told to get in there and start splashing and get, so you can get over to the side. That was one thing I'll never forget. <laughs> and did you come out unscathed? You didn't get hurt by that? No, thank God. And to this day, I'm not a water person. All right. How long does basic training last? Probably six months. I don't know. I don't remember exactly, but... Where did you go after basic training? I, my first ship was a Ambrose Light Ship off of the coast of New Jersey. It, you know, after the three-mile limit for the United States, so we could have got torpedoed any time by the Russians or whoever was patrolling that water. And then they sent me to Brooklyn Navy Base, where we, me and my buddy got a signed. Uh, Army tugboat, Tigon tugboat, and we had, I think, 25 or 30 people on it. And it took us around, down through the Panama Canal, up to San Francisco, back to San Francisco, down over to Manila, the Philippines, and the different islands. And what were you doing down in the Philippines? Unloading the cargo that we had or that we had a barge full of supplies we would drop it off in different places so I did see action in World War II you were actually in some battles or you just not, not were on the sidelines that you could see what was happening I was in the sidelines more or less so I didn't actually get it shooting at me or anything but you saw the wounded soldiers oh yes and what kind of an impact did that make on you? Well, Especially the first time you see something. What is that? Scared the hell out of us. And, and do you, you know, feel... Our first experience into that, because we were still young punks, you know, we didn't do anything. That's when you knew war is real. Right. <laughs> and do you remember, like, seeing things that would just make you sick to your stomach? Oh, it would upset you a little bit, you know. But other than that, I was lucky, so... How long were you over in the Philippines? Oh, shit. Maybe four or five months. I don't remember exact dates. That's fine. It's been a while, right? It's been a few <laughs> while. 
When then you, I got out and I got discharged. How and old were you when you got discharged? I'm asking lots of hard questions, huh? Yeah, you are, and I don't remember. So you didn't stay in for the entire war? No. I got out because I would signed up for the duration plus six months of the World War II. On the Coast Guard, they said, join the Coast Guard and you won't have to go anywhere. Oh, okay. So I found out you did go someplace. Do you remember hearing about World War II ending? Yeah, I saw, I saw him with the decks with Eisenhower and the Japanese signing the treaty and stuff. Where were you on that day? Do you remember? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been... A few years ago, you know. It has been. It wasn't yesterday. It has been a few years. So you are out of the service, and what and makes I, you join? I was yeah. looking for a job. I had $300 mustering out pay. My folks were in Los Angeles at the time, and I was staying with them, and I said, i got to find a car or something. And I'm looking through the one ads, and here it says, 1931 Cadillac for sale. And that started your love of Cadillacs? Because yeah. growing up, that's yes. all I remember. <laughs> you yes. having Cadillacs. So I called the number on there and I said, I'm a veteran and I just came home and I wondered if you still have the car for sale. And they said, yes. I said, well, my name is Robert Bates and will you please hold it until I get there? Give me a chance to look see it. And they said, yes. So I had my dad drive me to I think it was North Hollywood, and we got over there, and they said the car's in the garage. We went, walked back on the, opened the garage, and here's this 1931 V16 cylinder Cadillac. It looked like a monster, <laughs> and it was on jacks, mm -hmm. and it had the windows were, it had a fire, and the roof was burnt. So okay. all, all the windows were smoked and cracked. <laughs> and I thought, holy crap. <laughs> so I went in and I said, well, how much do you want for it? They said $100. I pulled a $100 bill off. Here's your $100 bill. And the gal opened the door about so much. And she said, the only thing we took out of it was a little clock. And I said, that's fine. She gave me the pink slip and... My dad went back and took the jacks, unjacked it, backed it out of the garage, backed it down the driveway, and there was a gas station on the corner. And I went to, I said, we got to put air in the tires and check the oil and the gas. And he pushed me and it belched and started. <laughs> and I drove it home. And the first night I got home like a dummy, I didn't take the radiator ornament off. So somebody stole it during the night. Oh. And that made me sick because it was, you know, one of those fancy. Mm -hmm. It was probably worth five or $600 just the damn hood ornament. More than the car itself? Probably. <laughs> 16 cylinders. <laughs> and I drove it for a few years and I, like a dumb shit, I sold it. Traded it for a motorcycle. <laughs> well, and I could kick myself. Take us back to what was going through your head, or why did you join the military again? Well, that was in Vietnam, or the Korean War was starting, 
And I thought, well, hell, I hadn't finished all my service that I was supposed to. And oh, I, you didn't? Okay. So I went in and I told them, and they said, okay, well, we can give you a choice of going back in the Coast Guard or the Army. I said, I'll try the Army. And do you know how old you were then? No. <laughs> so they sent me to Fort Ord, California in 1949. And I had boot camp training. And I have a picture of it in the over there with all of the company. And after we graduated, they, everything broke up. We went to Korea. How long were you in Korea? 1950. I was 1950. At December, I was at the Chozon Reservoir, where it froze over, and it was the coldest that it had ever been in the world for years. And people froze to death. How did I, you stay warm? I had my feet frostbitten, my hands and my face, and the South Koreans, after the war, made us sent us a special medal, that's what that one medal is, saying we were heroes. I said, I'm not a hero, I just did what I was told. What was your duty there? I was the, the 38th Field Artillery, 2nd Division Artillery, 105 howitzers. And we were up and down the coast, and the mountains, all over Korea. And I can't tell you the, the names of them because I couldn't pronounce them. Now, uh, you have a hat, and on your hat it says the DMZ zone. Mm -hmm. So you were at the De demilitarized zone, right. right? Afterwards, yeah. I was an MP. And when I came back to the States, I was still in the MP, and I was at the Presidio of San Francisco on motorcycle. And I escorted General Swing and three-star general. And... Did a lot of extra duties for parades and stuff. And my cousin, Jess Richmond, was in the same outfit as I was at the 701st MP Company, but not the same company. He was in one company, I was in the next. We didn't even know each other then. That is crazy. It is. That is really crazy. What did you find more to your liking, the Army or the Coast Guard? Or which one did well, you just like? The well, the Coast Guard was fine because you had a nice, clean yeah. bunk to sleep and yeah. good food. <laughs> what was the hardest part about being in Korea? Well, seeing the death and, you know, all of the destruction that was going on because it leveled everything. And the rice paddies, what they call the, what, the honey buckets, were what they used as human waste to plant the rice and stuff for fertilizer. So if you wanted to fall in, wow. you were getting shot at, you felt plopped on and you got full of crap. <laughs> so people that are in Korea should remember that, the honey buckets for damn sure. Now I know that we have talked before and you have said officials call it a police action, mm, but well, you totally disagree with that. Well, of course I do. They call it a police action or a, didn't even call it a world war. And I got a Chinese sword with the scabbard and everything. And this general comes up and says, Sergeant, I was a master, uh, staff sergeant then. 
He said, you can't have that. I'll take it. I said, just a minute, sir. I said, it's an official war trophy, which is signed by my battalion commander, and it's mine, and you cannot take it. And I showed him the paper, and he says, oh, you kept the paper. I said, yes, sir, I did, because it's mine. He says, okay. <laughs> Didn't pursue it anymore. Do you disagree? And I still have it. I, you do. I know. I've seen it a few times. Do you disagree with the police action, calling it that? Because in all intents and purposes, it was a war. People were dying. Well, people were dying and they are getting killed, yes. And some of these kids today don't even realize if it wasn't for what some of my buddies gave their whole life for so they could go around with their gizmos that they got yeah and i think that they in schools they should teach a little bit more about veterans and what what went what went on i agree when when you came home from both of those wars was it hard to get some of those images out of your head is it something you struggled with at all i i still do was in three major battles in korea and we got a presidential unit citation from President Truman. What does that mean, a presidential citation? Well, I've got to show you. That okay. There it is. To you who answered the call of your country and served in its armed forces to bring about the total defeat of the enemy, I extend the heartfelt thanks of a grateful nation. As one of the nation's finest, you undertook the most severe task one can be called upon to perform because you demonstrated the fortitude, resourcefulness, and calm judgment necessary to carry out that task. We now look to you for leadership and example in further exalting our country in peace. And it is from the White House and signed Harry S. Truman. And my name. And your name at the very top. Which a lot of people don't have this. Was that totally unexpected? Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a military... When I was at the Presidio. Bob's showing me a picture of himself on a military police motorcycle. And he was a very young dude. <laughs> <laughs> in Korea, there's, there's my... I'm the only one in the Army that had a motorcycle built. Really? So here's another picture. This was the other one in 1944. This, this is Bob standing in front of a military police jeep and motorcycle. That was in Stars and Stripes magazine, a paper that was published. <laughs> well, you have a lot of cool things here. These are all the places I've been and taken, and of course, when I got into the chicken business. 
Very cool. And I threw it was from a hospital in Palo Alto for a hundred hours. At the Veterans, Veterans. Hospital? Mm-hmm. They gave me a little the VA hospital in Palo Alto. There I am there. That was the colonel. Well, let me ask you, Bob. I had a lady on my podcast, and one of the things that she said is that she is very concerned that when the greatest generation is all gone, like yourself, mm -hmm. she worries about the country because it will be the last time that the whole country has had to sacrifice something. That's probably true. We don't know. It's easy to complain about many things now because we have it so good. Do you believe that's true? I don't know. It's not true. Look at the people that are starving today. Because the, the big shots are sitting there saying, well, we don't want to do this because it costs money. They don't realize that it does cost money. Just like any service on a company, if you have a service on the end of it, you lose money. But it's, if you didn't have the service company, you wouldn't have the company. What does the tattoo on your arm mean? Does it have special significance to that you? Was in, when I was in the Coast Guard, they started to put U.S. Navy and screwed up and tried to put U.S. Coast Guard on. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my buddies woke up the next morning with this patch on. What the hell is this? <laughs> you don't remember getting the tattoo? No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> Now that's a story, <laughs> and it's something you've had to have for the last 70-something years, right? We went to the Jack Dempsey Bar downtown in New York City, and these are, that's one of the ships I was on. What does being a veteran mean to you? It means I was, I was concerned, and I was during the war, and... I uh, think I deserved a little recognition, not not a whole bunch, but I I figured that the, being in the drill team helps pay back to some of the guys that are still over there, buried there, markers are over there. What about the honor flight? Can you share a little bit about that? What is the honor flight, and what were you able to do? It was a, a flight that we, uh, was the last one they had for World War II. They had one opening, and I got that, and Korea was for the Korean and the World War, World War II and Korean veterans, and I was lucky enough to get the one seat that was left for the World War II, and... Uh, Anyway, there was three, two big buses when we got to New York City and uh, or Washington D.C. Washington D.C. There we go. D.C. Not New York. I've been to New York. But How many days were you in Washington D.C. and what did you get to we see? We were there for three days. We were at the Washington Memorial and we saw all of the memorials, the Korean, the, you know, the Marines and. World War II, all of the 
And it was very impressive. And I think people, if you, World War II and you're still in pretty good shape, you're eligible. So if you get a chance, they might have another opening and take a bunch of other veterans. And you went with your son, right? I had to have a carrier, yeah, and I'm caretaker. Sh I'm sure that was a very special experience for him. Oh, it was for him, too. He had to push me in the wheelchair. <laughs> Bob doesn't need a wheelchair. <laughs> we got to the airport, and here was the drum, the bugle corps, the uh, Scots playing this bagpipes and the drums to honor us. And then we got on the plane, and then we got to Washington. They had a band, and here the veterans are. Was there? You had to be in the wheelchair, though. For safety reasons, right? And I'd tell my son, wait. I'd get up, and I'd go over and meet people. <laughs> and then come back and get in your chair before you got in trouble? Right. <laughs> Was there anything on that trip that impressed you the most or made the biggest impact on you? Well, I met... I'll bet 15 to 20 people from different countries, that, you know, it was September. I'd get there and I'd say, stop, where are you guys from? Because I'm not too bashful. Yes, Bob is very friendly and outspoken <laughs> and outgoing, as you can probably tell by listening. And they'd say, well, I'm from Ireland. I said, well, I've been there and I kissed the Blarney Stone. <laughs> I said, I was there with my son and that was quite an experience. And but meeting the different people, it was wonderful. Wonderful. Now, later on in your life, you have a career, and what are those two things that you have a great passion for? Chicken and Coke. Coca Cola. Well, I was with them about twenty-four, twenty-four, maybe twenty-five years, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. I still eat it every time I get a chance. My Uncle Bob and my aunt, who is my mom's sister, they owned a Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise. Still do. Oh, you still do? I thought you just owned the land. Well, we own the land. Right. The corporation has the business. But they had a Kentucky Fried Chicken in California. San Francisco. In San Francisco, and then they moved to Utah, and every year when we'd have our get-togethers... At the park, Bob and June always drove up in their Cadillac <laughs> with their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Isn't that right? Amen. Those are the, the, the two things that I remember. But Kentucky Fried Chicken was good for was good to you. Yes. And you were able to meet the Colonel once, right? Quite a few times. Oh, quite a few times. Oh, yeah. And how did you find the Colonel? Pretty gruff old guy. He'd tell you, you know, I want this or I want that. When he came into our store one time... In Cupertino, he says, go get me the pepper, tasting the gravy, and then go get the, gra the pepper. Not this one, the white pepper. The white pepper? They had white pepper and dark pepper. And so I had to take the dark pepper down and get, get him the white one, and he put it in. After he left, we'd have to throw it out because it's so strong. Now, here's a question. Do you know the secret recipe? No. They would send it to you already to go, and then you'd just bake the chicken? Well, it's already mixed in the flour and the breading, so. That's a very closely held secret, right? It's supposed to be. I don't know. <laughs> but Kentucky Fried Chicken was good, was good to you. Oh, yes. 
Still is. Yes. Thank God. Well, what are you doing now with veterans? Because I know you're still active. What is it that you do? I'm the chaplain of the post of VFW in uh, American Fork. And I'm also on the Tempano's drill team, which I either play the bugle or shoot the rifle. They tell me when we get there, today it's your turn for the bugle or it's your turn for the rifle. And I put my uniform on and... Is that your biggest duty is to yes. go to funerals? I figure it's payback time. And then you have a secret about that, about the bugle. Well, it's not a secret. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was such, and maybe, maybe, maybe many people don't know that. What's the secret to that, or do you not want to reveal? It's electronic. <laughs> <laughs> I have to push the button, and I got three seconds to get it up to my mouth and pretend, so I'm a pretty good actor. <laughs> but the gun, that would be real, right? The gun is real. Okay. The shoot blanks. Okay. They're M1s. And how does that make you feel to be able to give back and to go to these funerals? It makes me feel good inside. Like I've accomplished something. It's your way of giving back to those yes. who have given so much. Yes. Which Bob has as well, although he doesn't like to admit that, that he's given a lot. Well, I donate things and I help people if I can do that. And uh, I'm not a know-it-all and put my hands up and go, look who I am. I'm not. I'm not a hero. I just did what I was supposed to do and I love people. I know you do. Is there anything that you want people to know about veterans? They should be respected. I used to pick up a fellow that was, he had his one leg cut off and I used to take him to meetings I'd make his point to go by his house and pick him up, help him out of the chair, into the car, and into the wheelchair when we got to the meeting and take him home. And I, I figure it's, it's good to help each other instead of saying, hooray for me and the hell with you, <laughs> which people do. Yes, they do. They do. What is the best way to say thank you to a veteran? Is a simple thank you? Yes. Thank you for your service. And then we usually say, appreciate you telling how do you, us How that. do you feel when people tell you that? Makes you feel good. All right. My last question is, what does America mean to you? I'm glad that I am an American. And I've given a lot to my country. And if I could go do, do it again, I would do it again. I hear that all the time. I'm just getting, where well, one of these days they're going to have to plant me in Provo. <laughs> Not for a long time, I hope. <laughs> Bob's doctor said he'll live to be 100, isn't that right? I'm trying. <laughs> and on our gravestone, I said, until we meet again. And God knows when he pushes the button or pulls the chain, that's it no matter where I am or what I'm doing. Well, thank you, Bob. Thank you for sharing your American story. Well, thank you, sweetheart. And that, friends, is my Uncle Bob. They are not called the greatest generation for nothing. He is a character, and what a story he has, right? Our greatest generation 
is disappearing every day and with them their stories disappear too if you get anything out of this episode one thing i hope it is if you have someone in your family a neighbor who is part of this great generation a veteran make sure you go and sit with them and hear their story we need to preserve these stories especially now in this crazy time it is imperative to remember our roots and that this country is still the greatest country on earth one of the best things that you can do for my podcast is to leave a rating a review subscribe and share with friends and family these stories more Americans need to hear them. I am a firm believer that we need to hear these stories. And I can't do this alone. Next week, my guest is Maureen Julia Carlson. Julia is the 1998 Female Athlete of the Year for the Marine Corps. She has earned several awards, including the 2014 National Service Rifle Champion and only one of four females to earn Distinguished Rifleman Badge and Distinguished Pistol Shot. This should be a good one. Until Friday, see you then.